It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 8th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing, Louth County Council has signed a licence for the construction of Phase 1 of the Port Access Northern Cross route, along with uh, the necessary infrastructure to go along with that, including water services. Phase 1, as it's being called, is to cover uh, a new stretch of road from the Rose roundabout to the proposed Ballymckenney Road roundabout and it will include the realignment of 20s Lane and it will also see remaining upgrades uh, to the Ballymckenney Road take place. Let's talk about this uh, with uh, two local TDs Fergus O'Dowd of Fine Gael and Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster. Good morning to both of you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. Fergus O'Dowd uh, the council says that construction is planned to commence shortly. Uh, But this news came somewhat unexpectedly, did it not? Well, it came in the fact that the details haven't been absolutely finalised. There's still the legals haven't been finalised or signed off on, but it's at a very advanced stage. That's the first point. So you are right. There isn't a formal uh, decision announced as yet, but the council made their their statement yesterday, and I followed up with that. Uh, The most important thing in here is that is extremely good news because it's opening up the first phase and that will be, I believe, about 1,200 homes can be built on that land. And because the council didn't have the money to build the road, but even though they owned the land, and because the builder wasn't able to get the funding for the capital to do that, what has happened is that the state has stepped in and they're providing the funding for the road. When the houses are built and the builder is paid, he then pays back the cost of the road to the, to the state, basically. So that's the vehicle that has been used, and it's very welcome. And I know it's been a long, long battle for everybody, uh, but the good news is that it now opens up the northern part of our town, and for the future then, 
in terms of urban renewal, which was the application was made under urban renewal, but because it wasn't part of the physical existing town, it was shot down. It now means that a new plan can go in from the council uh, for developing the port and the areas around there, which are quite derelict, as we know. Okay, uh, so the money uh, is going to uh, be put up front by the state through the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund. Uh, do we know how much money is going to be available for this? Um, I do know that the, the company actually, uh, basically, does it, does it, the company is called HISCO, H-I-S-C-O, mm. and it's made up of funding from Cork County Council and the Irish Strategic Investment Fund. Now, this is set up some years ago to get around the problems of some councils not having money and opening up new land for development. Mm. So this is, this is the first big venture that they have. Okay, but the money will be, be channeled through them from the Ireland Strategic yes, Investment Fund. Michael, I understand the funding mm. will be some... The, the capitalisation of the company, which is a 50-50 from both parties, I think could be up to £60 million in total. But it will cover other proposals as well as this proposal. But it's, it's a way of getting the houses built and opening up the land uh, and keeping the cost down. So it, I think it's very, very welcome. And the council, in fairness to them, notwithstanding the long fighting saga that we had with them and with the government ministers as well, uh, it, it is very successful. I've met the Tornister, I've met the Minister of the Environment, the Minister for Transport, mm. I've battled this along with other people. And the problem all along was it was seen as a transport project and not... Uh, a, an urban renewal project. Okay. But that, that sack is now over. But you're not surprised by the announcement made by the council yesterday? I'm not, but, but uh, like, it's been a long time coming. Mm. And it well, of course, and there's been a lot of criticism, yet, and a lot of criticism from many, including yourself, as to how the council had dealt with this up Absolutely. to now. Uh, Imelda Munster, um, did this news come as a surprise to you? No, not, uh, well, I mean, I wasn't expecting it there and then yesterday as it came, but I had been in touch with the county manager back and forth all along, like, about it, and she had said that they were working um, with developers and that she was hopeful that there would be some progress. That was about, I think, a couple of months back, that it was looking good, that there would be something come out of it. So Mm. that yesterday was welcome, but as I said, it's just the start and it's just phase one and you might remember Mike I was on the council when the Northern Environment Plan was being drawn up and it was a battle a day uh, to put in protections in place for the the plan to be sustainable over the years and at, at that time what we'd secured was the um, the, the Northern Environment Plan at the time it was to build 7,200 houses in Drogheda and it was to be done in phases and phase one where the, where the developers would have had to build phase one of the road along with the houses but they couldn't move on to to phase two building houses until the unless the the road was being built in conjunction with it now that's that's all gone now and you know that there's there's no protection that the houses are going to be built but it is welcome and i mean the, the county manager and i wouldn't be someone to you know given the neglect of drata from both the loud county council and the government mm. did say in our statement that it followed years of disappointment in not securing government funding mm. um, for that. And I mean, all through the years, I literally used every available forum to me to push 
for funding and for the last yeah. 11 years okay so so you had funded, you, you had a sense of it are. you had a sense of it but you hadn't been briefed on it i i no, I, no. I, I i was very surprised uh, mm. at the news yesterday i was also very surprised that it was announced on twitter uh, and mm. that it wasn't announced uh, to the councillors or the local public representatives and i think half an hour after the tweet uh, there was a press release in relation to it, and it seemed, uh, and it, it's uh, shorter on detail. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, as you say, it is welcome news. Twelve hundred houses out of seven thousand houses. Um, when is this road going to be built? Do you think? Uh, and uh, by that, I mean uh, uh, all the way to the port. Well, that's that's the thing. It's the fear is that it's going to be piecemeal. I mean, the point I would say, given that. Um, the council have engaged with the developers, you know, um, to do this and um, phase one. The biggest fear is a worry that, you know, it's going to be done in a piecemeal matter and there's going to be 1,200 houses at least, at least. And whether they're given the go-ahead then for, for further houses, that's going to lead to, you know, if there's at least one house mm. or one car in every house, further congestion and the town being totally clogged up as it is at the moment. Mm. I think the important thing is, given that, you know, this has happened and the government had played no part in this, that they need to actually commit to funding the remainder of the road so that we can, the town can get, so firstly, so it's done in its entirety, so the town can get the full benefit for the town and mm. relief to motorists and congestion. It has to be done. We've waited that long. I mean, it's, I think it's come on, I think it was 2006, when we started the Northern Environs Plan. And, you know, all this time, late, years and years later, and you can see, you can see it. It, it can take nearly an hour if you have to go to, to you know, drop mm. off children to two places in the town to get a few kilometres yeah, inside well, that, the that, town. That, that will probably worsen before it gets better because that's, you're, go- you're, going, to have, you're yeah. going to have 1,200 new houses. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, and, and you're talking about, you're, well, you're talking about uh, at least two and a half, three Three and a half thousand people, and at least yeah, one car. Yeah. Quite possibly, uh, two and a half thousand cars if uh, yeah, each house yeah. had two cars. Uh, but Fergus O'Dowd, uh, welcome and all as this is, it won't do anything to help that congestion from cars clogging up the town. But it, it definitely won't do anything uh, for the main objective, which is mm. to take trucks travelling to the port from the north side out of the centre of the town. Um, absolutely, it's, it's, this will be the last part in terms of the furthest distance uh, from the port, but it's the nearest part to the actual motorway. So they're starting at the point where anything that's built will be the nearest point to, to the motorway where we wanted the transport to go to. And you are right, it has been a phase, and as Imelda said, it, is, it was always a phase development. But the key point is the company, the state company, and Imelda, you're absolutely wrong in what you're saying. This funding is coming through state funding. It's coming through the Strategic Infrastructure Fund. So the government is involved, uh, and it is putting up the money, and it will hopefully, it's making this all happen now. The charge that you made, Imelda, about the government not doing anything, I can say this is a road up to November of 21, that's last year, no application, no application was received by the Department of Transport for this road. But the only application that was made by the council that I'm aware of was in 2018 for the Urban Renewal Fund. And in the marking nationally of all of those applications, 
Loud County Council's application got a C5, which was very poor, seriously interned weaknesses. It wasn't the right. It wasn't the right scheme. It was exactly, yeah. but mm. there was no. There were, so it's all very well for TDs to, you know, to opposition to say the government didn't do anything. There was no application before them to fund the road. In so, in so the, ca- the, the council didn't do anything yeah. right uh, yeah, in terms exactly. of achieving government but, but funding. But they've done it right now, and I think that's the point. And the, the charges of, okay. of, of it's not it's not well, it's not so government it's money. It, it's money that is raised for the state by an arm of uh, the state. Uh, exactly. uh, it's not a, a government decision, mm. uh, and you couldn't describe it as government money. Um, no, it's, it's it's money that the strategic uh, uh, raises on top of uh, on, yeah. on um, the part of the state, um, but it's not. It's there's not a government decision. It's not in the national capital investment plan. It, it's not in any government yeah. document. There's an agreement no, being made it, Michael, between Loud County Council uh, and. Um, Michael, you're, you're you're wrong on this. This this company was set up specifically to deal with projects like this that the funding isn't available. Okay, but the money is coming from the Ireland Strategic or, 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 Investment or Fund. Private developer. So it is government funding, it's state funding, and it's working. And the other point is, to answer Melda's charge, is that the funding for this Hisco company is being increased up to £60 million. Now, the application was made to the state, or the ERDF funding, sorry, for £56 million. So the money that was looked for by the council, this company now should have adequate and appropriate funding to build all of that, okay. if that's what they want. Let, 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 let Melda Munster come back there. Look, as I said earlier, government has played no part in this. I mean, we wouldn't have stage one starting if it wasn't for, and as I said, I'm not one to praise the county manager given the neglect of Drada, but if it wasn't for this initiative, there'd be no phase one starting for, as I said, for since 2016 when I was elected, to Leinster House, I have consistently, consistently pursued, begged, pleaded with government for funding. When you look at the neglect of the town, and this was one, this was a plan going back to 2006, and it actually makes a mockery of county development plans that councils are instructed to formulate every, I think, six years, you know, when government doesn't actually produce the funding, and particularly funds that are specifically for strategic roads. And let's be under no illusion, the government know exactly the problems of congestion in Drogheda. Drogheda. They know the, the lack of investment, the lack of funding to enhance the town or to encourage an investment, and they never once, they never once, they made plenty of false promises, but they never once, and it's a start, and okay, I'll come well, back to it again. It's, 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 six, it's 60 million of state money yeah, at the but same in order, time. But yeah. it's, still, yeah. it's still just a part yeah, of it. Just say you're the just, sorry, I didn't interrupt you. It's still just a part of it. And at this stage now, the government that you're a part of, Fergus, needs to fund, to give a commitment to fund the remainder of the road. OK, let's talk about that. Let me, let, let, let me put a question to Fergus O'Dowd in relation to that, because this is phase one, uh, possibly of seven phases. So if uh, what we're talking about now takes five or ten years to complete, uh, how long will it be? Uh, before the road is uh, going from uh, the Rose Hall roundabout right down to the port. Are we talking about 50, 60, 70 years from now? Well, I I hope not, Michael. Uh, And I think to be reasonable about it all, 
the road has to be joined up and also you have to start somewhere and you have to end somewhere so the road is starting where the motorway is uh, so that's the that's the right place to start because if you start at the other end you, you, it's only when the road is finally finished any traffic can get out of the town so mm. let's be reasonable and sensible well I take it it'll be two years at least before oh, no, the no, work no, begins hold on a second uh, hold on a second now uh, the point is that it's starting. I think that's great. News. But, uh, but it'll, be, it'll be at least two years before it begins, well, won't it? Well, I, I can't answer that. Well, I mean, it's going to... I mean, you know... Well, I'm for, not you, a builder. I know, but you're a politician and, and you've great experience about the planning process and that this is going to end up going through uh, on board Planala. It'll be appealed uh, as many times over as possible. As I understand, the planning permission is, is ready. It's there. Okay. Yeah, so there's no issue about that. There's no issue about Histor- histor- historic no planning issue. permission. There's no okay. issue. Okay. Uh, there's no issue about the funding for it. Um, the houses, as a result of the mechanism that has been used, and I said I welcome the initiative of the county council in relation to hmm. this. It means that the houses should be cheaper rather than dearer, and it means that as soon as it's built, I've no doubt that they'll start building the road. They, the housing will start as soon as okay. possible. And, and, uh, and will there be a school? The will there be a school and a playground? I mean, this is uh, yeah, a, a lot of houses and a lot of people. I mean, we're talking about is, yeah. possibly three, 4,000 people coming to live yeah. in Drogheda. So will there be a school? Will there be well, shops? Will there be a green area? Will there be a playground? If you look at my statement, it's actually all about that. Yeah. It's about the infrastructure along with the housing because we don't want concrete jungles. Mm. We want environmental schemes. and We want amenities. We want schools, we want health services, we want mm. all of that. Okay. And that's what the County Council is planning. Is it? The last point is... Is it? Is it though, the, like, uh, have you, you seen the plans? Build, you, can't, you, can't build, you, you can't build all the houses at the one time. You have to put the service... No, I know, but the Council issued a statement yesterday saying that they're going to uh, start this. Uh, you say yes. that's, uh, in effect, 1,200 houses. Uh, what else do we know? Do we know there are plans for anything other than a road and 1,200 houses? Yes, we do, Michael. There, 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 is, there is a development plan. I mean, Imelda talked about it there. She actually made that plan, so she'll be able to give you more detail on that. Uh, the plan that was made is totally different to what's happening now, as I said. With but the that, goes back, that, secure, that yeah. goes back to 2007 or something. Yeah, that's it, 2006. But the at the time, plan, just to give you an example, Mike, at the time, we've, I mean, there was skin and hair flying at council meetings. I was pushing and my colleagues, my own colleagues were pushing for um, sites to be included for schools. Eventually we got the sites. They were on the Ballamackenny Road where the schools are now. They're full to capacity now. That's without these houses. And sometimes, you know, I get a mixture of weariness and anger when I hear government TDs talk about the infrastructure will come. This is a prime example where there was ample opportunity for the government to fund this road in its entirety for the betterment of the town, for the development of the town, to attract investment into the town. And they consistently rejected or refused to fund it. Now we have it in piecemeal. Now we have it in piecemeal. And if if you're serious, Fergus, if you're serious... No application was made. If you are serious... No, hold on a second. If you're serious about the people of Drogheda benefiting, then you put pressure on your colleagues in government. Because are you worried, Imelda Munster? Are you worried, Imelda Munster? Just let me ask the same question of Imelda Munster that I asked of you, Fergus. Are you worried that this could take 50, 60, 70 years? Well, 
piecemeal and you're, you're at the mercy of developers, who knows how long it'll take? It's going to be piecemeal. This is the start, as I said, but it's only, it's just a start. But we need it done in its entirety if the town is to see the benefit of it. And if you're dependent and at the mercy of developers who are literally, they're not in it for the benefit of the town as such, they're in it for profit. So they're going to want the maximum amount of houses. And I'm scared out of my mind that we're going to see thousands upon thousands of additional houses and that road will be 10 times worse off than we are. And that's why it's imperative. I think both of you you would agree it'd be nice to see a plan, wouldn't it? I mean, if the work work is about to start, wouldn't it be nice to see what what they're planning to do? Yeah, yeah, because the plan that was is gone now. The plan that was is gone. All those protections were dropped um, when the, you know when everything happened and with okay. the housing crisis hold on a second now Fergus O'Dowd is saying the plan is there where is it Fergus yeah. well it's called the county developer plan right now I, I haven't to brief for it right now Michael but I can have it for you next no, week no no okay but yeah. I, I think to say that there isn't a developer plan is, 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 is not accurate no the we're talking about the northern environment just finish this point please because Imelda, no, for this phase, specific, specifically, specifically, specifically what they're going to do for this phase, they're going to build a road, they're going to build 1,200 houses. Yeah, but uh, Michael, where is the school going to be? Where, where is the green area going it, to be? It's where, all where? in the plan, Michael, and that's what I'm trying to say to you. Uh, to, like the, the county development plan, the county council meets, they decide, the councillors, and it's the elected councillors, decide what is going to go where. And you can, I'd be very happy mm-hmm. to go on your show next week or tomorrow if you okay. wish, uh, to go through what is in the plan okay but you're, you're you're saying there isn't a plan in Elder Monster that, that, that's what's saying, confusing my biggest fear yeah. is now when you're at the mercy of private developers when the government refuses to fund it to fund a strategic road you're at the mercy of private developers to do it in a piecemeal manner and all they're going to look for quite obviously is to build the maximum amount of houses they're, in, they're not in it for community benefits okay. they're in it for Michael, that's the final point, the final point to Fergus the, the application to the state under the wrong heading, but the amount they were looking for was £57 million. Mm. The funding that has been given to this company at this moment million, time yeah. okay. is going to be £60 million. OK, so we leave it there. You're talking rubbish. Thank you. The point being, <laughs> after 16 years, we're now only getting stage one. Okay. Why? Because government refused to fund it. Well, we'll see how it pans out uh, uh, over some period of time. I suppose it's anyone's guess how long that will be at this stage. But thank you both indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Shin Fain's Melda Munster and Fergus O'Dowd of Fine Gael. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, as you heard yesterday, the government has announced employment regulation orders to cover the early learning and childcare sector. It'll provide minimum payment rates for the first time ever. And those minimum pay rates uh, start at €13 Euro an hour for early years educators, school age childcare practitioners, goes to €14 Euro for early years lead educators, school age childcare coordinators, 1550 for graduate early years lead educators, school age childcare coordinators, 1570 then for deputy managers, 1650 for managers and at the top end of the scale graduate managers will earn €17.25 an hour. It's part of a €221 million Euro government core funding scheme. Theresa Heaney is uh, the CEO of Early Childhood 
Ireland and a very good morning to you Teresa and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, it was a, a very significant announcement wasn't it? No. Oh. Hello, Teresa. Hello. Oh, yes, yes, I'm here, yes. Hi, Teresa. <laughs> I think the line dropped out on us there. I, I'm just saying, it, it was a, a very significant uh, announcement. What do you make of it? Yeah, it's a very significant announcement. Um, the uh, our, These discussions, these pay talks, have been ongoing now for a number of months, and that saw um, people from IBEC and SIP2, colleagues from IBEC and SIP2, um, meeting at the Labour Relations Commission to come to this agreement, which has been going on now for a number of months. I mean, the challenges, we've spoken about them before so many times, Michael, the challenges um, of this sector are, are many, and key amongst them has been challenges of recruiting and retaining uh, the, the qualified staff to work in the sector. So these discussions at the Workplace Relations Commissions by, by the people from IBEC and SEPTU over the last number of months have been in order to come to an agreement as to how that could be rectified. Government last year's budget committed, as you said yourself, to investing over 220 million euros. But as is right and proper, they wanted a mechanism to ensure that that investment would uh, would improve the terms and conditions of employment of okay. the workforce. And it'll be a much more attractive uh, job for a lot of people who are earning minimum pay or, or, or thereabouts. It uh, certainly will. I mean, I just yeah. um, yeah. I, I was having a look at information from the Central Statistics Office that was produced a couple of years ago, and indeed from from SIP2 that was produced last year. I mean, and the numbers of the experience of people who are qualified, let's remember mm. that, that the people, and it's mostly women working in the sector, are all qualified. 25% of them have two jobs one year after graduating, and uh, they're earning about €340 Euros a week after graduating. So that leads to all kinds of financial insecurity, poor career paths decisions to leave the sector. Mm. And one of the very interesting stats about this sector is that we have lots of people who are qualified in early years but who choose to work in other sectors. One year after completing their course, about 30% of the workforce chooses not to work in this sector, which then leads to very real problems. It leads to an inability of operators to find staff, to even find them if they can afford to pay them, which then in turn leads to room closures, leads to the challenges that we've spoken about before, Michael, where parents can't get places for children under the age of one. So it, it really, it, you know, it directly impacts on availability mm. and accessibility of places. So this move yesterday begins the journey of addressing the terms and conditions of employment. It's, I don't think anybody mm. would think that they're good enough. We certainly in Early Childhood Ireland know that they're not good enough. They we probably would, would have been a lot better a year ago than they are today. Well, we ha- we do an annual barometer and uh, in early childhood Ireland, and we've spoken to you about that, Michael, where we assess the public's attitudes to further investment in the early years and the school age care sector, and you know, those barometers every year confirm the public agree with our position that people in the early year sector if they have the same kinds of qualifications, same levels of qualifications as teachers or nurses or other professions, deserve to be paid appropriately. 
And so we have a long way to go. The minister has made a commitment that he will continue to invest in this sector. He also, of course, has to address the question of affordability. We're expecting uh, this forthcoming budget to significantly (coughs) address affordability. Mm. But we need to seek ongoing investment to address the terms and conditions of employment. Well, this order or these orders come into law from the 15th of September and the budget is on the 27th of September and there's a bit of a problem in that uh, gap, isn't there? Well, we don't think that that's a problem, no, because this amount, this money was committed in last year's budget. So the money is there to immediately immediately see these increases. So on the 15th, from the 15th of September, 70% 70% of the staff in this sector are set to receive salary increases, which is just fantastic for those women that are out there mm. working today to know that these new minimum rates of pay are are going to be set in place because we have this order. And and that's fantastic for all of those women that are out there working today. Next year's budget, or the, the budget in at the end of September is about next year's money. And we um, have already submitted a pre-budget submission saying that we need to be building on this level of investment if we're going to get to the 1% of GDP, which is internationally required. Mm. If we're going to address things like like affordability, terms and conditions, like the, the, this workforce doesn't enjoy very uh, ordinary terms and conditions that a lot of people would expect. They, about 5% of pension schemes um, maybe 20% have maternity leave or sick pay. They don't enjoy those kinds of terms and conditions. So we've got the wages, uh, we've got the first job mm. done on wages, and that's really very welcome. Yeah. But we now need to be addressing the rest of the terms and conditions of employment if we want to 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 uh, attract the very best people to work in this sector. Okay, and does it mean that in a week from now, on the 15th of September, that some employees will go from... 10.50 an hour to 14 or 15.50 an hour. That's exactly what it that's means. Like four, that's, that's like 40% fantastic. increases. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's it's stunning to think that 70% of the workforce are currently earning less than that lowest uh, uh, wage level that you discussed, that you set out mm. there in your introduction. 70% are earning less than that 13 euros. So for those people, if they're working as lead educators mm. or if they're working as deputy managers or whatever the role is, um, and the fact that there are a number of um, pay scales included in the ERO begins to show a career path as well mm. for this workforce. I mean, and it's a huge workforce. Mm. Uh, and there could be Twenty-five to thirty-five thousand people working in this workforce, and we want them all to. We want to, to be keeping that expertise and that experience working in the sector, okay. and we need to stop seeing it um, moving out into other other jobs okay. in, in communities. All right, very positive, uh, a very positive first step, you might say, Teresa, but very positive nonetheless. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Teresa Heaney is a CEO of Early Childhood Ireland. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, 400 members of Retail Excellence met with Minister of State Damien English in Athlone this week uh, to talk to the Minister in advance of the budget about some of the challenges that the sector is facing. Duncan Graham is uh, the Managing Director of Retail Excellence. And like everybody else, Duncan, I take it energy is to the fore of everybody's concerns. Yeah, hi, Michael. Yeah, look, it's dominated the conversation. Um, 
throughout. We had we had a uh, day and a half um, of a conference. Uh, the minister attended uh, the start of the second day, and um, you know was was reassuring in some of his words in terms of the fact the government were listening to the plight of small business, but it certainly dominated the conversation from everybody that we spoke to, from small boutique owners to convenience store owners. Um, they're all talking about one thing, and that's the rise in energy costs. Okay. And, you know, solutions can't come soon enough at this stage. Uh, and there's one solution that you want to see the government move towards, and that's capping the price of energy. Yeah, look, we certainly need to see... Uh, the some certainty. I think that's the key thing, Michael, that, uh, you know, at the moment, there is nothing certain. Um, I, I hear the UK this morning has announced a sort of loan scheme to energy companies uh, that will mean that they don't have to pass these price increases on. Um, and we certainly feel that that sort of thing needs to be considered by the government here. Um, what is for certain is that if something doesn't happen shortly, then we're going to be in for an extremely difficult Christmas, the third successive difficult Christmas that we've had. Um, and inevitably, that's going to result in, in job losses and store closures. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's difficult. We need the certainty and we need something doing to uh, at least you know, mean that we don't have to pass these uh, energy costs on to, to businesses and to consumers at the, at the end of the day. Okay, no doubt people are, are already seeing a, a difference in their bills uh, and uh, there's more to come of course because of uh, the recent increases and there is so much uncertainty about when increased bills will stop coming through our doors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you talk to, I think where this bites most, Michael, and I, I was talking to um, you know, small convenience store owners uh, over the last two days, and these are people whose businesses are in every town and village across the country um, and who provide that service, you know, from seven in the morning, sometimes even earlier, through to eight, nine o'clock at night. Uh, the doors are open, the lights are on, the fridges are working. Um, you know, they're the people you go to first thing in the morning when you've, you know, when you've run out of milk. They're the people you go to last thing at night when you're, you know, trying to make sure you've got cereals on the table for the kids mm. in the morning. That's the sort of place. And those are the people who are seeing their electricity bills and their energy bills going from, you know, 20,000 a year up to 120,000 a year. Mm. Um, and they're the ones that are scratching their heads going, how am I going to be able to cope with this? Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the bottom line is if, if something doesn't happen, then they're the people who, you know, potentially will be saying, look, I can't trade from seven until nine. Yeah. You know, I've got Reduced to hours at least, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, Cra- and that's the problem, you mm. know. Crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, you were also uh, saying that uh, visa restrictions should be relaxed uh, so that you can get staff from overseas. Uh, there's obviously a problem recruiting. There has been um, right since the end of COVID. Uh, I mean, if you recall back a year ago, it was the hot topic was actually getting people into mm. stores. And of course, what happened during COVID was the world of work in retail changed. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the people that had been employed in retail jobs uh, moved away from the country and didn't come back. Uh, a lot of those jobs were then taken by Irish people, which is great, but it, there weren't enough of them. Mm. Um, and so you know, we, we've been pushing the government um, through Minister English for, for some time now to ensure that we have got uh, you know, an easier way of bringing non-nationals, non, non-EU nationals into the country um, so that we can fulfil some of these, these job roles. You know, um, is, is it because there, 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 there's so much employment available, they say it's almost full of employment, or is it also a case that some people just won't work? Uh, I think it was uh, quite shocking to learn a couple of months ago that uh, 15,000 people have been un- unemployed in this country for 10 years or more. Yeah, look, I think there's a, there's a little bit of that. I think, you know, we are at full employment. 
Um, we, we were quite lucky yesterday in that uh, we had a couple of members of the uh, Department of Social Protection along. And, you know, we've been working with them for the last two or three weeks now around a, p- a plan to get more, uh, to look at other areas of you know, people that may have been may, may be out of work for a while. Like, you know, some of the people that have sort of semi-retired, um, you know, that could do with those few hours in retail to supplement the pension, you know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and those are the, you know, that, that's the area that perhaps we're looking at. But, you know, clearly there are others there that simply you know, won't come back into the workplace. That's inevitable in any country. But, um, you know, there, there are certain pockets that we, we could look at. Um, and it probably is at that, that other end, you know, the, the person that just wants to do two or three hours. And yeah. at the end of the day, Michael, retail careers suit a lot of people because of the part-time options and the flexibility mm. that they offer. So yeah, that's the, uh, you know, that, that's what we're pushing with and them. And there's a good social side to it as well, of course. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, though. Duncan, thank you indeed uh, for joining us, as always. Duncan Gray, Managing Director of Retail Excellence. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And many people in the north of Ireland are starving and freezing in their homes. We need a tailored solution for Northern Ireland, but that's much harder to achieve because the DUP are refusing to form a government at Stormont. The new Prime Minister has a choice to make. She can either be on the side of the DUP or on the side of struggling people in Northern Ireland. So whose side is she on? Well, Mr Speaker, I I want to work with all of the parties in Northern Ireland to get the Executive and the Assembly back up and running so we can collectively deliver for the people of Northern Ireland. But in order to do that, we do need to fix the issues of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which has damaged the balance between the communities in Northern Ireland. I'm determined to get on with doing that, and I'm determined to work with all parties to find that resolution. The new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, responding to the SDLP's column Eastwood in the House of Commons yesterday. We need to resolve the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol. My preference is for a negotiated solution, but it does have to deliver all of the things we set out in the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. And what we cannot allow is for this situation to drift because my number one priority is protecting the supremacy of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. That's Liz Truss in uh, Westminster yesterday. Uh, Former MLA and uh, Stormont Minister Jim Wells uh, joins us now. Good morning to you, Jim. Good morning, Michael. Uh, What do you make of the new British Prime Minister? There is some uh, optimism this side of the border that she'll sell unionists out and won't be able to contemplate the idea of a, a trade war given all of the problems that she has in her place. Well, she can't uh, sell people out up here in Northern Ireland and pursue her Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. So therefore, we're hoping that she will continue to push that through both Westminster and the Lords and that we'll rid ourselves of the worst uh, effects of this uh, deal, which is caused huge problems in Northern Ireland. We're also, by the way, encouraged by the appointment of her new Secretary of State, Heaton Harris, who has a long history of being a Eurosceptic and a member of the ERG. So there's the signs of hope on the horizon. But uh, does she have the bottle to do that to people, to enter into a trade war? Well, this is a set of the trade war, but remember, Europe needs the UK an awful lot more than the UK needs Europe. Uh, one in five German cars is sold uh, in the um, United Kingdom. And therefore, I, I suspect that 
uh, cool heads will prevail. And uh, what about we, all the people starving and freezing in Northern Ireland that Colin Eastwood was talking about? This surely will only compound that situation. Well, of course, already financially it has been given to the most vulnerable. There's proposals for further financial help. A mechanism will undoubtedly be found to deliver that to the people of Northern Ireland. But meanwhile, in the long term, we know that if we don't deal with the protocol, Northern Ireland faces a very bleak economic future. So therefore, we have to look to the future. We have to look long term and clearly ending the protocol has to be the absolute priority for all the people of the province. Right. Uh, she wants to negotiate. Uh, Europe isn't going to negotiate an end to the protocol. Well, then that's unfortunate, but uh, we cannot allow... You, and I keep making this point, I can't, we can't mm. allow a border down the Irish Sea. No more than the people of Donegal would tolerate a border with the rest of the Republic of Ireland. But what's she go, what, what's she going to, what is she going to try and negotiate if that's not up for negotiation? Well, she's going to say, look, here's the choice, folks. Uh, you either amend the protocol or we'll do it for you. And, I mean, no country cannot allow its, its integrity to be affected so badly mm. as has happened with the protocol. And we're seeing the problems thrown up every day, particularly in the food and transport sector. Mm. This can't continue. Uh, it was an error of okay. judgment even to have considered it in the first place. And remember, all of this is to try and control the 6% of trade that goes from GB to Northern Ireland and then goes into the European Union. I think Joe Biden, I I think Joe Biden uh, spoke to the Prime Minister um, after she took up office, uh, one of her first calls, if not the first call, uh, and by the sounds of things, he he, he said to her, would you have some sense? Uh, Think about it. Don't be so silly. Uh, There won't be a trade deal with uh, America if you continue to pursue this path. Yes, and he's obviously under pressure from the Irish-American lobby, which, of course, is entirely nationalist. But at the end of the day, thank you very much, Mr. Biden, for your advice. But we are an independent, sovereign country, and we will make our decisions. And we wouldn't dictate what he did with Alaska or Hawaii. So similarly, it's not really his role to interfere in the internal affairs of this country. We have survived so far since Brexit without a trade deal with uh, uh, North America, uh, particularly with the USA, and the economy has done relatively well. So therefore, uh, uh, you know, at the end of the day, whilst we take friendly advice from mm. other countries, they're not going to dictate what we're going to do. Okay. Uh, there has been some comments that she softened her tone, that Liz Truss... Uh, campaigning was talking about triggering Article 16. Uh, on a, a election, she's talking about negotiating. I think you're right on that one. I, I think uh, we have noticed a change in tone. But again, the appointment of Heaton House tells us that she still means business and they do not have much more Eurosceptic than the new Secretary of State. I think that's sending out a clear signal to mm. the people of Northern Ireland that this issue is going to be dealt with and dealt with properly. Uh, do you think that the Irish government is naive in expressing optimism that everybody's going to change their minds completely on everything that they said previously? <laughs> yes, I think they've been very optimistic, to put it mildly. Uh, and, of course, we want to maintain good relationships with uh, the Irish authorities. But as a part of the United Kingdom, we're not going to allow our country to be split in two. And, uh, you know, again, we, we value the input from the Republic. Just to clarify you know, that, you, you mean the United Kingdom split in two, uh, but you're, you're, you're quite happy for the island of Ireland to be split in two by a hard border. Well... 
But yes, but there are ways of dealing with the 6% trade without creating a hard border. The trusted trader status is the obvious way of dealing with this problem. But of course, Europe still wants to inflict the maximum amount of pain on the people of the UK for having the temerity to leave the European Union. This is what it's all about. This is about the Hungarians and the French and the Dutch. In other words, teach the British a lesson, make it very difficult for them, and no one else will dare to even suggest leaving the European Union. So therefore, we're part of a much bigger chess game here. We're simply the pawns. And, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, we are the fifth largest economy in the world. And if we have to decide to, to, to protect our integrity by having uh, major problems with the mm. European Union, well, so be it. Inflation of 20%. Well, the, the, the inflationary pressures are actually nothing to do with Brexit. It's, it's Putin and but, the but war in he, Ukraine. He, and he, so many he betrayed war, though, on top of uh, the existing uh, inflation rate and the ongoing problems with the war. Well, I, I don't think we're going to get to that stage. I think eventually good sense will prevail and that we'll get a solution to the protocol, which it protects the integrity of the European Union, but doesn't use a sledgehammer to, to crack a very small nut. Mm. And, and I, I think sense will prevail eventually. But unfortunately, Michael, you and I will be talking for many, many months about inflation. And that inflation is caused by factors which are well beyond the European Union. Mm. And you, and the, uh, as members of the EU, will be affected by them as much as we are. OK. Uh, do you think Keir Starmer would uh, scrap the protocol? If he became prime minister... Mm. No, I don't think he would. Mm. But I mean, uh, maybe that maybe, two, maybe that's the solution, is it? Well, the, the fact that we've got at least two years before the next Westminster election—that's more than enough time to deal with this issue. Uh, there's no prospect at the moment of a Labour government, and I suspect that this trust will probably have a honeymoon period and boost Conservative Party support. Uh, and there's a good chance that she could uh, do very well in the next election. So that's long term. Uh, if we haven't got the protocol situation solved by the next Westminster election, then we really do have problems. Mm, okay, I, I think uh, there's going to be a, a tough few months ahead for governments right across Europe. Uh, it'll test everyone's metal. Uh, there's no doubt about that but uh, I'm sure like everybody else uh, you wish uh, the new Prime Minister well in her role it's good to talk to you by the way and thank you indeed uh, for joining us once again on the programme no problem thank, thank you thank you indeed Jim Wells former DUP MLA and former Stormont Minister there now uh, let's uh, bring you some of the comments uh, coming to us but before we do I just want to go back uh, to our item yesterday on school buses the school transport system and no places for many children when we're speaking to a, a lot of uh, people in and around Anagassan uh, but it's a, a nationwide problem as you know 9,000 children without a, a place uh, and we were expecting a statement from bus Erin yesterday it's come to us uh, this morning it's a very lengthy statement uh, but I'll just read the par- last paragraph which I think is uh, the important part which is uh, that they're continuing to procure additional capacity uh, to cater for the remaining pupils who meet the qualifying criteria of the scheme. Nationally, they say we have to date uh, secured over 272 additional school transport vehicles and 116 services have had larger capacity vehicles added to the service or the route extended. Additional resources are being put in place in our call centre to deal with increased call vo- uh, volumes. Uh, but I, I, I think that there's probably something uh, in that uh, because they're talking about additional capacity uh, for remaining pupils who qualify uh, they meet the qualifying criteria for the scheme 
that's I, I think and somebody will correct me if I'm wrong uh, that's not those uh, who would be deemed eligible for a concessionary ticket uh, and I think that means that you can expect that those problems that we heard about on the programme yesterday are not going to be solved anytime soon. Now, let's uh, go back uh, to some of the comments, as I say, that have been coming to us today and uh, a number of people in touch with us. And thanks to everybody who has. Sheila saying, if school children were allowed to do their homework during school hours and teachers allowed to correct the homework in school, it would help to save on electricity. It's an interesting call to get, isn't it? I mean, it's a good idea, uh, Sheila. Thanks uh, for suggesting it. But it's mad that we're at a stage that we're making suggestions like that, that we're so frightened about the cost of energy. Uh, Gronje Andrade says, let's hope uh, that all of these new houses uh, that are going to come in line with the construction of phase one of the port access route will be affordable for ordinary people. Otherwise, it won't do much to solve the housing problem. Thanks uh, for that, Gronje. Well, I'm sure if there's 1,200 houses, uh, it'll go some way towards housing people and whether uh, they are affordable or not, uh, it'll be 1,200 houses and uh, perhaps uh, that will make its way around in an indirect way uh, to people uh, who need affordable housing. Uh, it has to be a bonus, uh, but uh, what it means in terms of the infrastructure is another day's work uh, because you're talking about three, four, five thousand 5,000 people coming to Drogheda uh, and what that will do to the town, what impact it will have on the town. A text from somebody saying, Michael, I listened with interest to your discussion this morning. I wish to ask Fergus O'Dowd, where is the infrastructure for the huge development? Um, I think uh, this is Andrade. I think um, we got that text in earlier uh, at Newfoundwell. Yeah, that's it, at Newfoundwell. Where will children play? Just a concrete jungle. Uh, that's uh, Siobhan. Thanks, Siobhan, uh, for that. <laughs> it came in, uh, cut off uh, for a second time. Uh, well, I suppose uh, they'll play in the same area that other children in the area are, are playing. I mean, there's the Glen and uh, there's whatever else is around uh, the locality as well as the uh, Blues uh, as a, a, a local club and that. Um, I, I, I don't know if more is needed, Siobhan, or if that's what you're saying. Uh, Matthew Andrade is saying, Michael, if we go bust and the builders stop building, who's going to fund the Northern Cross route? Will Fine Gael and Fine Fall do it? I don't think so. Well, it's being funded through uh, an arm of uh, the state, the Strategic Ireland uh, Fund, uh, which uh, borrows money on behalf of uh, the state. So hopefully... Uh, that answers that question. Eric Cuthbert in Dundalk says, Michael, the long-term solution for the housing problem is to stabilise the population. What? <laughs> A Chinese approach, is it, Eric? Stabilise the population. Uh, soon there'll be no countryside left. Uh, there is money in development, unfortunately, he says. Uh, thanks uh, for that. And thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Well, the Dáil resumes its business next week. It's going to be a very busy political season, obviously, with uh, the budget taking place on the 27th of this month, ahead of the resumption of Parliament's work. The different political parties are holding their thinkings and people before profit, uh, like other parties, have met this week uh, to discuss their approach to some of the huge issues uh, that all politicians will be facing into this season. Uh, let's uh, speak now to people before profit TD for Dublin Midwest. Gino Kenny, good morning to you, Gino, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, like all of the parties, I suppose, uh, the focus is on the budget and uh, the specific focus on energy and the cost of 
living. Uh, and you're proposing a, an overall budget package worth 15 billion euro. Yeah, that's right, Michael. And uh, obviously, these thinkings happen are kind of a precursor to the doll returning. So obviously, kind of parties kind of set out their stall in relation to very immediate things and kind of long-term things over the kind of the doll term as such, and that would be probably, you know, as of next week till the summer. So obviously, the, the issues that are kind of affecting everybody uh, is the cost of living, and obviously that's the most obvious one, and in relation to uh, housing and climate action. So obviously the budget is on the 27th and that will be kind of, a, I suppose everybody will be kind of eager to see what kind of uh, the government will do in relation, particularly around the cost of living. I think that is the issue of the day that's uh, affecting so many people in relation, particularly around energy costs. So obviously one of our kind of aims is in relation to capping energy costs because um, energy costs have at least doubled, at least doubled mm. in um, the last nine, 10 months and that's not sustainable it's just not sustainable and I think what you'll see is the apex of the cost of living crisis uh, we've come into in the winter months because energy costs have literally I mean have, have doubled in, in some cases so that's not sustainable for the vast vast majority of people so uh, there needs to be radical action in relation to that and you know a number of energy companies in this state are making a lot of money in relation to um you know, kind of price rises. Mm. So obviously, they have to kind of pass that on to consumers and so forth. But it's immoral, um, I would think, and most people, your listeners would think that, you know, energy companies that are making vast profits on the back of people, you know, people that will struggle. So there needs to be <clears throat> radical action in relation to energy, energy companies, how they make actually the profits. Uh, windfall tax, uh, as, as they call it. And I take it that would help to raise some of these billions that you're talking about spending. Yeah, yeah. And obviously there would be a kind of, what we said, proposed yesterday, that there would be a thousand euros for every household in the state in relation to the cost of living crisis. Okay, uh, but you'd be giving a thousand euros to people who desperately need it, as well as people uh, who would mean nothing to. Yeah, I mean, obviously that is hard to administrate, you know, um, but I think it should be universal. Um, and everybody that needs a thousand euros, some people give it back, but the vast majority will, will accept it. And I think, you know, that's that's what's needed because obviously inflation is running at nine percent. Uh, people's incomes are generally kind of stagnating, uh, but you know, certain things in society is 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 going up. So something has to give, and it's all relative to what you earn mm. and what you can you know buy. So, uh, you know, there needs to be radical radical measures done at kind of at this at this juncture. And um, I mean, if you do, if you think this is radical, I mean, in Britain. They're, the the Cowrie government are going to spend a hundred billion sterling in relation to the crisis. Mm. Obviously, that's been directed towards loans to energy companies and so forth, which I, I would disagree with. Uh, but this is like this is a crisis that we haven't seen in probably 40, 50 years in relation to inflation. Fair enough, but you're talking about a population of 60 billion or so, aren't you, uh, compared to the 5 billion here? And uh, if you were to give everybody a thousand, that would be um, 5 million here. Um, you're, you're, you're talking about... Um, Two and a half billion euros. That's what it would come to. Right. So yeah. obviously, mm. there's, obviously, there's been a bit of a, a windfall in relation to revenues in the state of the 5 billion. So um, I think that would go some way of actually, you know, 
addressing some of the issues that people are really, really facing. So that unexpected corporation tax, uh, which can't be guaranteed will be there next year, you take it and spend it now? Yeah, yeah. I think you'd have to spend it now because the crisis is so deep um, and people are really, really struggling. And, you know, most of the thing about it, Michael, most of that money will come back to the state anyway. Mm. You know, people spend it on certain things and it comes back in some kind of guys via tax. And it's not even radical to say and, you know, I was just listening to uh, RTE there a few minutes ago, that in some European countries now they're talking about nationalisation of energy companies. Now, we had that kind of, I suppose, policy maybe a number of decades ago in relation to the ESB. Mm. I would be, uh, people for profit have stated that all energy companies need to be nationalised. Mm. But so, don't we uh, more or less own ESB? Yeah, it's a semi-state. Yeah. And obviously any, there's a dividend that we get back. Um, and that's ASB is a really, really, really good company. Um, but there's a number of other energy companies that are making profits, and then profits run into 50 million plus north of that. And I think you know energy companies have to kind of step up to the plate to say, okay, well the government have to step up to say, look, there has to be there's caps on energy prices. There cannot be a price that you can overcharge consumers. It's just immoral, um, and hopefully that will happen. Uh, because obviously the crisis, is, uh, as I said, we haven't seen mm. it. We, we we're coming into the, the apex of that. Yeah, and yeah. You're, you're talking about reducing bills and then capping them, because you're talking about capping them at the prices people were paying at the end of last year. Yeah, yeah. So the end of 2021, um, we, we have seen on average probably at least prices going up by 100%. Mm. Uh, so the price has to go back to that that kind of that cap so that means energy companies have to kind of take a hit and there has to be legislation in relation to capping energy prices and it's like this is not kind of a dystopian kind of socialist revolutionary kind of talk this is like almost mainstream in mm. relation to Europe and in relation to Britain um, that kind of energy companies uh, have to be told that you cannot charge uh, people um, you know costs that are just unsustainable, where people have to make, you know, you know, they have to make a choice between mm. eating at home and not eating at home. You know, that's not acceptable. So, um, you know, governments across the European Union are kind of taking action. Yeah. There's radical action that's needed. And the cost of heating your home uh, may be unaffordable if you can afford to rent somewhere. Uh, and yeah. you're looking for new legislation in relation to what people are charged in rent. Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, there should be uh, rent control. Um, and rents, I mean, there's probably no difference what's happened in Dublin and kind of County Loud and surrounding areas. It's unbelievable. I mean, Michael, I've been at this game for the last 13, 14 years as a public representative. And I have to say, I've never seen it as bad in relation to, you know, people that are going into homelessness, people that just cannot find a place to live. It's pretty unbelievable. And I thought a number of years ago that we had seen the worst of it. But now, the amount of people that are entering homelessness, they just cannot afford a point of place to live. And you have a scenario which is quite unique in Ireland where, you know, people are, you know, awarded, say, homeless HAP. Um, standard HAP does not cut, cut the mustard anymore. And even people with, like, access to over €2,000 per month via the homeless HAP cannot get a place. It's just impossible. So it's really, really depressing in relation to the scenario that we're in and a lot of people are in 
Uh, this obviously is a policy issue that goes back two decades in relation to public housing. Um, and this is a crisis that, fortunately, I didn't think I would say it. Probably going to get worse. Probably going to get better. It does look that way, doesn't it? Yeah. We need radical solutions, and that does take time. But this is damage being done by successful governments, particularly Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, in relation to housing. It's like shelter is the most basic thing human beings essentially need. One of the most basic things. And if society cannot provide shelter in the basic form, mm. there's something wrong, Michael. There's something wrong, wrong fundamentally. Yeah. In relation to societies that cannot provide shelter, in relation to decisions, I just don't. I just don't mm. get it. You know? uh, well, we could uh, if we had the focus. How, how we lost focus is uh, another day's question. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on at the program today. That's People Before Profit TD, Gino Kenny. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the doll will resume next week and uh, the budget uh, then will be announced in less uh, than uh, three weeks. Let's speak uh, to Piers Doherty, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on finance. And a very good morning to you. You'll be making your own pre-budget submission, but you already have some things decided on what you would like to see happen uh, in uh, the announcement that will be made on the 27th. The government is planning on possibly two billion euro spending on one-off measures and you're suggesting that they should go far higher than that yeah michael i i think you know when if you understand the the depths and the scale of this crisis the impact it's having on ordinary families right across the state the impact it's having on workers and uh, how those in low and middle incomes have been really pushed to the pin of their collar two billion euro and it sounds big to anybody sitting at home isn't going to cut it uh, because the supports need to be a lot wider, need to be a lot deeper uh, than that. And for example, we put forward yesterday one of the suggestions we'll make to the government, one of the proposals is that we reduce the cost of electricity back to where it was last year uh, before the energy crisis kicked in and we cap the prices, we keep the prices at that level, giving everybody not only a reduction in their electricity bills than the, compared to what it would be, yeah. but also that certainty that you're not going to see electricity go up over the winter months and those months you know between now and the end of February is when average households consume up to 50 to 75 percent of their energy so getting them over that hump uh, and that really worrying time so Mm. that measure in itself could cost anything up to 1.7 billion euro and Uh, people know know already that it's difficult to to meet the bills uh, as they arrive and that it's going to get a whole lot worse Um, but uh, it's reducing the bills capping it at that uh, and uh, allowing people to uh, feel a little bit more confident because I think at the moment people are terrified aren't they? Absolutely terrified Um, you know and like and unfortunately, and this is you know this is the terrible thing. They haven't really seen it yet because the bills, the real bad bills, haven't landed through the letterbox yet. Uh, as bad as things were in terms of the energy costs, you know, earlier at the start of the year. Um, for example, in October, you're going to use average households use up to nearly four four times as much energy as they did in August. So that means that your bills increasing four times on its uh, itself anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you're hearing the companies increasing uh, electricity from anything from 27 to 42 percent. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's another double whammy. These households cannot afford this. And the and more people in the house, the higher the more people in the house, the higher the bills. 
Exactly, because not every household is the same and that's why we need to additional measures, not just reducing the cost of electricity back to where it was last year and, and keeping it at that level during the winter months, but also we need additional support for the likes of bigger families. That's why we want to see a one-off doubling of the child benefit payment. But also we recognise that it's wider than just electricity. Mm. Some people are using a third of the population use home heating oil to heat their homes, others a third use gas to heat their homes, and therefore we need to see support for them and that's why we want to see cost of living cash payments, uh, energy cash payments uh, paid to, to, to low and middle income households to help them offset some of those costs. Along uh, again, you're talking about a universal payment uh, that you'd be giving money to people who really need it and uh, to people uh, it won't make much difference, if any at all, to. Well, the cash payments wouldn't be universal. Um, the cash payments would be targeted uh, and would be tapered, which means that the lower your income, the more cash you get in your pocket, and this would be paid to individuals. So, for example, let's just say that there was two individuals uh, listening to this radio station today and both are on minimum wage or uh, you know, working part-time. Both of them would receive cash payments in the region of €500 Euro each. That would help them offset some of those costs. They would also have the certainty that, uh, that the energy prices are back to where they were last year and they won't go up during the, the, the winter. If they have children, they would get a doubling of the child benefit payment for every child they have. Uh, and also, we want to see the extension of the reduction that we've seen earlier in the year in terms of petrol and diesel. We want to see that go right through to the end of the year because it's up in October uh, and right into next year. But not only that, we want to go to the maximum lowest level possible. So there's a suite of measures that we're putting forward. Uh, that suite of measures costs more than what the two, the two billion euro that the government are talking about. Uh, and we are in a position, Michael. We're, we're in a far better position, thank God, uh, to, 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 to be able to afford this. Many countries across Europe, most countries across Europe actually are running deficits, so they have to borrow to, to fund these type of support packages for workers and families. We don't. We are planning to have a, a surplus of €4.5 billion. Euro. Uh, this time last year, we expected we'd have a deficit of about eight. So there's a €13 billion euro turnaround uh, to the better so we're in a better position. Now, Sinn Féin are not advocating that we spend all that money. Far from it. We're, not, we're still looking at running a surplus of billions of euro. But we are saying that the package needs to be substantial. It needs to be ambitious. It needs to be targeted. And it needs to have uh, those type of uh, issues, given that certainty to workers and families during the winter month, reducing petrol and diesel, supporting ca- families through cash payments that are targeted, uh, doubling child benefit, supporting renters uh, by that, uh, you know, by by one month's rent back into your pocket uh, and also some other measures such as childcare fees being reduced in September by a third. Okay, um, and the uh, drawing up of your uh, pre-budget uh, submission uh, continues to be a, a work in progress and uh, no doubt we'll be hearing more when you publish in the next couple of weeks. Um, can I, I talk to you about uh, the sale of a, a company 10 years ago? In 2012, a company called SiteServe was sold Uh, And a report by a commission of investigation published yesterday said that that sale was tainted by impropriety. Uh, And uh, the company SiteServe is a company that we're all speaking about over the last seven or eight years or so because of the attention that was brought on it. It was sold in 2012, but this commission of investigation was set up some seven years ago to look at the sale of SiteServe to the businessman, Dennis O'Brien, because 
it was essentially taxpayers' money that was in question because SiteServe owed €150 million Euro to Anglo-Irish Bank uh, and it decided to write off 118 of that €150 million, Euro, which probably wasn't too unusual at the time that huge uh, amounts of money owed were being written off because of bad debts to the banks and so on. Uh, the bank then went on uh, under its new guise as um, the Irish Bank Resolution Corporation, uh, Anglo-Irish by another name, uh, to sell uh, the business uh, to Dennis O'Brien for £45 million, I think it was. Uh, this report said it, it, the sale was tainted by impropriety uh, that uh, they could have raised an additional 8.7 million euro, which um, is important, obviously, to the taxpayer. Uh, and it's a very important report because the judge uh, who headed up the commission has suggested uh, that the revenue commissioners and uh, the corporate enforcement authority uh, talk to some people and take a, a look at some uh, of uh, the transactions involved in this deal. But if it was sold for a, a loss, let's say, of €9 million, Euro, it's a very peculiar story because the commission itself cost the state €30 million Euro to investigate what happened. What do you make of all of this? Yeah, well, let's pick up on the last point. First of all, the commission, the fact that the commission has cost that much in the first instance is just ridiculous. Uh, the fact that it has taken seven years, seven years to get to the bottom of this to issue a report is just not acceptable. Uh, we were at the time were putting forward a different model with legislation that would have a different type of speedier commission of inquiry and um, that wasn't accepted by government. But look, this isn't the first time. Like, you know, we're still paying out we're still paying out legal fees for the Moriarty Tribunal. That was remember the sale of the uh, the, the, the the phone line, the mobile phone license to um to Dennis O'Brien mm-hmm. and Michael Lowry was the minister at the time and, and all of that. So like and these are costing a fortune and they're taking so long to get to the end of so there's a bigger question in terms of how are we able to get to the get undercover uncover the truths in a matter in a speedy and a cost efficient way that is in the public interest. Now this report it's very long, it's fifteen hundred pages long. I haven't read it all. Um, I've skimmed through bits of it. I was in Leinster House yesterday and travelling home so I didn't have much time to do that. Um, but I I, I, I do note this that they found that this was not a commercially sound uh, sale. They found that uh, you know there was a preferred bidder here, that others were excluded. Uh, they found tax structures that they want the revenue commissioners to look at, into. You know the public don't ever see usually the the, the nitty gritty of how these transactions happen. Uh, the commission found that there was a kind of above the table process and an under-the-table process. The Commission found that key people misled the Commission itself uh, and indeed misled the bank, IBRC. Uh, so, uh, and the Commission found that, I think it was me, I think to make the point that I was the first person to raise this, uh, asking the Minister why, uh, you know, because the Minister obviously held, owned the bank at this stage, uh, why uh, 118 million euro was written down in debt while at the same time, €5 million Euro was paid out to shareholders. So can you imagine that? Like where the state is owned, the taxpayers owned €118 million. Euro. Mm. Uh, the, the, the state, through the bank, decided to reduce that debt and the share for the company and the shareholders of the company all get a dividend of €5 million. The actual commission then, you know, they, they, they show what happened after I put in that question, all the twos and fro's and, and, and all that. Mm. The, 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 the lack of information that was given to some parties. But they actually found that that decision 
by IBRC uh, to recommend that was uh, would cost the state millions of euro, possibly up to 2.1 million euro. Mm. So this is an important issue. It's an important issue because we need to ensure, like, th- these tra- transactions happen all the time. Debt yeah. write-downs happen all the time. You know, that's not the only debt write-down that no. happened in IBRC. <laughs> certainly has not. We, no. So mm. we, we need to know mm. that things are happening above board, fully transparent, that there's no insider influence, uh, that there's nobody with fixed agendas. And this report shows that in this case, that isn't what happened here. So when it, says taint, when it says tainted by impropriety, in plain language, is that saying this was a dodgy deal? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. They, and they, and, they, and know, we, spent, we spent 30 million euro to find out uh, that uh, we could have uh, made 9 million extra on this deal. If different processes were, were applied, if there was, uh, you know, if there was full information given to all the parties, then IBRC would likely have taken a different approach uh, and therefore millions of euro would have been saved for the taxpayer. Um, and millions of euro is important, you know, um, that's that's really important. But also what's important is that there is no type of like, you know, when people are playing at this level with high finance, we need to make sure that there is no inside track. You know, there is no, as the commission talked, an under the table process. That's not acceptable. Um, and, you know, that's where we need accountability. The big problem with a lot of this here is, look, you have these reports We've had the Mahan Tribunal, we've had the Moriarty Tribunal, you've had all of this. Mm. What happens at the end of it, you know? Um, well, so seven years on, I think most of us have forgotten SiteServe uh, and what the controversy was about, and we're trying to remember and catch up, to be completely honest. And that's it. And look, you know, initially the, the issue was, why did this debt get written down? Why were the shareholders then? You know, like if you've got a company that needs a massive, massive debt write down, and you imagine you're the shareholder in a company. You've gone to your bank and you say, look, we owe you 150 million euro. We can't pay it back. We want you to write down some of our debt. And the bank says, OK, we're going to write down 118 million. And then the company turns around and says, happy days. You know what we're going to do now? We're going to give you all, all the shareholders. We're going to give you a dividend worth for 5 million. Like that's, that, that raises questions. And then there was other questions being raised in relation to the committee that was involved in the sale. There was another bidder there. Were they excluded from the process? Was there a preferred bidder? Mm. All of that is unveiled in relation to the um, in, in relation to this report. And the report finds the report finds in its conclusions that this was not a commercially sound. Uh, sale mm-hmm. uh, and that's seriously problematic mm-hmm. uh, for for the parties that were involved and and calls into question then how do we as you know as the doll collectively ensure that this never happens again because like you can't set up it you know you mm-hmm. can't be you ha- can't have eyes and ears everywhere you have to have processes and not just processes what you need is the stick sometimes the stick isn't big enough here what happens when you're caught you know and um, because white collar crime uh, in this state uh, you know it largely goes unpunished uh, we've seen that with the banking collapse. We've seen that with tracker mortgage scandal. We've seen that in numerous times in terms of tribunals. So I, I think there's a really serious question in terms of how do we actually deal with um, with, uh, with 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 issues like that. I called, for example, in the past. I've called for government to look at the the American model, particularly within financial institutions, where whistleblowers within the institution actually get a portion of the proceeds. So if you can imagine that. 
you know, mm. somebody within the bank because it's a very small country and it's a very, you know, everybody knows each other, particularly in kind of high finance. Yeah. Uh, so, like, if you blow the whistle on somebody in one bank, you're unlikely to get a job in another bank. That's yeah. that's the unfortunate position. But incent- incentivize people to and, report yeah. wrongdoing. Yeah. In America, okay. when the bank is fined, then by the yeah. central bank, 100 million euro, the person who blew the whistle gets a portion of that. There's an incentive to actually say to spill the beans and say this is what's happening here. Okay. Uh, and I think we need to be looking at models like that there that 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 they can get to the truth um, and and get hard evidence okay. in terms of what's happening. All right. And and and, and, and by yeah. doing that, mm-hmm. what you're trying mm-hmm. to do isn't you know isn't jailing people. What you're trying to do is incentivize good behaviour within the bank. You know, you're trying exactly, to incentivize yeah. that mm-hmm. you're not going to get away with it. Yeah, you'd be afraid to do it. Exactly. <laughs> the way most of us are, <laughs> who don't deal in millions, obviously. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining thank us you. on the programme this morning. That's Sinn Féin spokesperson on finance, Pierce Doherty. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we're facing into a long, cold, dark winter. The HSE is advising older people on how to keep well and warm this winter. You should eat a meal, wear thermal underwear, walk around or maybe get out of the house uh, if you can't afford the heat and go to the library or uh, a museum or somewhere like that uh, where the heat will be on. Let's speak to Anne Dempsey, Communications Manager and Training Facilitator with Senior Line, which is run by Third Age Ireland. Good morning to you, Anne, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Um, that's kind of disturbing to hear advice like that, isn't it? It is, but it's, it's it's kind of helpful as well, rather than you know it's giving you some things to do. I suppose, Michael. I mean, I mean, we are living in very disturbing times, but I think if we can, the more advice and help and support we can offer, the better. I think you know. Mm. Um, I've, I mean, the, the HSE advice. That's some of the advice we're giving our volunteers to tell our callers. We're beginning, Michael, with the kind of most kind of extreme end. You know, we're, we're advising people not to kind of sit in the dark, but be very proactive in every way. Uh, you might know that. The electricity and supply, they all, the energy suppliers, they all have what's called an industry special services register. Mm. And it's for people aged age 66 or over living on their own or with another older person. And if you're in this category and you have difficulty paying, let them know and they will not disconnect you. Right, okay, yeah. Which, again, I haven't known that till I began doing my research. But to be placed on the register, you have to contact your supplier. You have to be proactive. Okay, so whoever you pay your ESB bills to, you have to contact them. And And ask to be put on their special services register. And are you hearing from people, uh, because there seems to be... a lot of anxiety uh, going into the winter because the cost of everything is unaffordable for a lot of people already. There's free, free floating general anxiety, and the main thing is it's very nebulous. People don't know, they don't know what they don't know, they don't know what they don't know. Don't they? Well, they do know if their bills have already gone up and everything, but there's a lot of unknown still, isn't there? And they're just really fearful about what is going to happen and how they're going to manage. There's a huge amount of fear on the line, which is like, like I suppose representing the fear in society generally, Michael. I mean, we're all kind of worried, aren't we? Oh, absolutely, yeah, because... You uh, know, yeah. Uh, I don't think there's anybody, uh, no matter how well off they are, who haven't noticed uh, how the bills are increasing, uh, and for no, some people... No, not at all. The other thing we were looking at, I was um, in the realm of kind of 
being proactive and taking action for yourself. I mean, I was reminded, you remember the, uh, when people were really, their house arrears were building up and they were having great difficulty meeting their mortgage. Now, I know that is still the case, sadly, for many people, but there are a lot of people just let it go without contacting their mortgage provider. Yeah. And at that stage, things were very, very in a more difficult position. So we're advising our callers to, to organise a payment plan. Again, contact your supplier and see if you can draw up a plan together. And again, our, our information is that most people will work with you given half a chance. Yeah, well, these increase in the mortgage rates could cripple people today. Well, that's that's very, very true. Mm. I suppose the point I'm making is not so much the mortgage itself, is the you're relating it to our current energy difficulties, Michael. Mm. Don't do nothing. Be proactive. Take some action on your behalf. Mm. I was listening to somebody from MABS this morning, and I'm sure you talked to MABS yourself. They've an office in Navan, haven't they? Mm. And they they were talking about that. They would sit down with you and, you know, draw up a payment plan with you. And they will also represent you to... Your, your various creditors. And I think that is particularly relevant to our callers because an awful lot of our callers, they might know what they want to do, but they have, might have difficulty doing it themselves. So they need a friend in court, literally, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah. D- don't uh, watch it all fall apart, I suppose, is a, a simple That's way of point. putting it. Uh, be proactive. Re- reach out and ask for help. After all, because there will be people there that will help you. The other thing we were saying now, we, we've all kind of smaller stuff around, as you said about keeping warm, eating warmly, walking around mm. the house, you know, with all kinds of stuff about, you know, good room temperature, if you can manage that good room temperature. I think it's also relevant to make sure you're claiming all your allowances. Mm. You know, the household benefit package for older people, it's worth 540 euro currently, Michael. Yeah. And towards electricity, natural bottle gas, mm. and also towards we know telephone bills, cost of TV license. But a lot of it's the, amazing how many people don't claim it. Well, that's my point. Yeah, you know that's my point. Mm. Make sure you're you're getting all you should be getting. Yeah, and you know if if you don't know, we've all these phone numbers here. Department of Social Welfare mm. will tell you. HSE Information Line will tell you, yep. and Citizen Information. And Senior Line will tell you. Uh, and, and Senior Line yeah, will. Well, the, we won't, give you we won't have the, know. you know, we yeah. will have all those numbers. Yeah, yeah the, exactly the, the fuel right. allowance as well, the living alone allowance. There's a, a number of things uh, that you could be claiming, and they all add up. Uh, they might seem like small amounts, but they all add up. Uh, senior Line can be reached every day from 10 in the morning till 10 in the evening on 1-800-80-45-91. That's one 800 91. You can call that number and speak to an older person uh, who'll uh, be there to listen and advise where possible from 10 in the morning till 10 in the evening. Thank you to Anne Dempsey, Communications Manager and Training Facilitator with Senior Line, which is run by Third Age Ireland. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.